Today on Ag News Daily. Peru, for many folks, um, isn't what we recognize to be an agricultural powerhouse. We certainly think of much more Brazil and Argentina. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Today's another Friday episode here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. And for today's Friday guest co-host, I've got on with me Caleb Hamer. Caleb, thanks so much for agreeing to uh, be on the other hot seat with me today. Oh, you're welcome, Delaney, and uh, I'm happy to do it. Mike is a good friend, and if I can step in and help him out, I'm happy to do it. Well, we certainly appreciate having you in today. You've got some, definitely got some opinions of your own. You're a farmer in northern Iowa. Tell us a little bit about your operation for folks that maybe don't interact with you on Twitter or know a little bit about you. Um. Depending on how in-depth you'd like to go, currently we're in the middle of a transition process, so uh, my, my typical how things work story is still in flux, <laughs> but uh, we're, we're a row crop farm. We don't have any livestock, uh, corn and soybeans, and then we also are in the uh, seed production side of both corn and beans um, with local uh, Monsanto and Pioneer being in the area. There's a lot of seed production in our area. Uh, also, we do a lot of custom work. Uh, most of that custom work is uh, application of chemicals. We do a lot of spraying for some neighbors and as well as the seed production acres we get across. Yeah, you are definitely a, a busy guy. And you're one of the oldest listeners to the Agnes Daily Podcast, probably, you and your dad. I'm uh, oldest? Well, I'm just, older than I am. I mean, I don't mean by, younger than, <laughs> I don't mean by age. I mean by listening, listenership. You're probably oh, one of the yeah. oldest listeners we've had. Longest, maybe, yeah. what's the better way to put that? Uh, most loyal longest listener? tenured. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. <laughs> Not old as in age. Your dad would probably take okay. you on that one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, awesome. Well, Caleb, excited to have you on today. What is jumping out at you? You said you mentioned you listened to President Trump's address this morning. Yeah, I was hauling corn to Cedar Rapids this morning and they broke in on the radio station and did um, the his address. And I, I quit listening once they got to the comment section. Mm-hmm. But I mean, they kept... Uh, saying on the talk show that they would be breaking in to cover Trump's address on taking emergency actions at the border. But what I found interesting is he got on there and he talked about a whole lot of stuff before he ever got to the border. Mm-hmm. He, he talked, uh, he led off with the China trade deal and then he went to a UK EU trade deal. And then he talked about the summit in Vietnam with North Korea uh, coming up in a couple of weeks. And then he started to talk about the border. And then he divulged back to China again before he ever got to the talks of emergency action. So um, to me, I think that's interesting just because I think it shows what's on his mind. I know the wall and the border is big in his, his what he wants to get done. But at the same time, obviously, China is very much at the forefront of what he's still thinking about because he brought it up twice. Absolutely. So did he have any comments? Let's start with either the Chinese relationship, uh, the North Korean relationship, or the EU relationship. Were there any comments that jumped out to you specifically related to agriculture? Uh, I'm not so sure specific to agriculture any comments were made. He did 
um, express a willingness that if he had an acceptable deal from China, I believe he expressed um, a willingness to lift the tariffs toward mm. them, which would be a big deal, especially uh, not just grains, but the steel and aluminum and whatever else these tariffs since we right. started this process. Yeah, absolutely. So we know that we had uh, Chinese relation trade relationships going on or negotiations going on this week. It looks like now they are set up setting up meetings for Washington, D.C. next week. From what I've heard, Caleb, it sounds like they didn't really have any anything to report on. They're still very divided when it comes to intellectual property and some of the technology things. But at least we've got another meeting set up in D.C. Yeah, and he did mention that he and President Xi would be meeting face-to-face again uh, next week or the week after. And it sounds like ultimately the deal is going to be brokered between the two of them. I mean, there's going to be a lot mm-hmm. of talk amongst the, the deputies they bring with them, but ultimately it's going to be between Trump and Xi. Yeah, absolutely. That That's exactly what I was going to say, too. It sounds like U.S. stocks declined today on news of little progress. The S&P 500 index dropped about three-tenths of a percent on the day, which isn't a huge move, but definitely a reaction to the Chinese trade talks going on. Um, As we know now, President Trump did sign the fiscal budget into effect. And so this will essentially fund the government for another six months. And as you mentioned, Caleb, he also now declared us in a state of national emergency about the funding of the border wall. So what were his comments this morning around the national emergency? What was his thought process behind that? Uh. I don't really know where he came from on it, but he, he's saying this is the fastest way for him to get it done. I, he seemingly expressed that they could get it done legislatively, but he wants mm-hmm. it done. He wants it done now, and he knows he's going to get challenged in court, so he's just dropping the hammer on it now so we can get the court process started so he can move forward with it. it it's interesting, too, because he's threatened to essentially pull funds from other I guess, pieces of the fiscal budget to fund the wall. Did he talk about that at all today? I think the only part I caught was he would be reallocating some funds that were already within the DOD budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, And then again, he got into, he may have hit some more of that in the question and answer period, but I turned it off at that right. point. Okay. Well, overall then, it sounds like, well, at least we have a fiscal budget in place. Um, now we have some new hoops to jump through for sure with funding the wall, but at least we know the important ag entities like USDA and FTA won't shut down for at least another six months. Correct. Yeah, so that's good news there. Caleb, I have some other news today. Talking about WOTUS, we know that WOTUS is kind of in the 60-day comment period where folks can essentially send in their comments and thoughts about the new proposed waters of the U.S. rule. And 36 senators and 161 House members wrote a letter to the agency, the EPA and Army Corps of Engineers, asking them to extend that comment period by another five months, essentially saying that it wasn't enough time for folks to um, go through the, the proposed rule. And it wasn't a long enough time for the agencies to consider those comments and figure out what should be done for the new proposed WOTUS rule. 
Five months seems like a long time. It does, especially in D.C. when we know that <laughs> nothing gets done on a quick measure. <laughs> I mean, I know it's a long piece of literature, but it doesn't take five mm. months to read. You'd think not. No. <laughs> but uh, that's also going on this week in Washington, D.C. What other news were you listening to or uh, reading? I know you mentioned maybe Basis was on your radar this week, Caleb. Well, I've been noticing some uh, chatter across Twitter and then uh, just checking some of the emails I get on market commentaries and uh, the Pacific Northwest corn and Mm -hmm. corn basis especially has been really pushing recently. And I think I've figured out that in the last about uh, two weeks, the train freight to get a rail car loaded has gone up about 10x. Mm. Wow. It's gone from about I think I saw 125 or 150 bucks to 1300 bucks last night. That is crazy. So that, that's a that's a 10 10x increase and I so I reached out to my broker uh Brian at agnet or agmarkets.net and asked him what he had been hearing about it and sounds like a lot of weather related things and there's some demand involved too and I also reached out to uh Garrett Toy at uh, Ag Trader Talk, because when it comes to freight, he seems to know what's going on a lot of the time. And he mentioned that neck of the woods and that uh, also the New Orleans basis, the SIF basis at New Orleans is at a three-year high. Mm-hmm. So I mean, basis-wise, there's a lot going on in the market. I think um, from a strength standpoint, it's just we haven't seen it ha- happen on the board yet. Yeah, I would agree with that too. And I know we had... Um weekly export sales this week, which obviously the PNW area exports a lot of soybeans to China. We had weekly exports come out for the week of January 3rd, December 28th through January 3rd, because of course the USDA data is behind. It showed a net reduction in sales for soybeans of 600,000 metric tons. So I'm sure that that is taking a toll on those folks' basis as well. Well, and that, and I think the weather's the other big thing. I know mm-hmm. the Dakotas are fight, fighting to get trucks moving and trains moving and yeah. snow snow and wind, and it repeat the process every couple of days, I'm sure. Yeah, and I do not envy folks living in that part of the U.S. right now at all. No, it's bad <laughs> enough here. I know, I agree. <laughs> well, even with all of that being said, with trade and whatnot going on, the USDA released farm projections for the coming decade. And for 2019, they released net farm income at $77.6 billion for across rural America, which is a $14 billion increase from projections that were made last year. They accounted these increases to 2019 cash receipts and a drop in cash expenses. So the USDA, I guess, is projecting that 2019 is going to look like a little bit better of a year, but I'm still a little optimistic that they raised it quite that much. It seems like a lot unless they know something we don't, right. but I mean, I would figure they had a lot of the market facilitation program built into last year's numbers. That's true. That's what I but, would have thought too. But I don't know. Maybe we'll find out down the road how much of those were paid out. Mm-hmm in the 18 tax year versus the 19 tax year, because you did have the chance to push it into 19. Right, that's true. And you you and your dad used the market facilitation program. How was your experience with it? Was it a simple process? Did you have a hard time getting your payments? 
Mm, well, we have a couple different entities to be fair about it. So dad put in his and got his with, with, with ease. I mean, just that show reasonable documentation of your numbers. And we signed a couple pieces of paper and I think he had his money within two weeks. Um, and then I got caught in the shutdown and couldn't get mine yeah. until here a couple of weeks ago. And I had it in two different counties. One county, I got my money within three days and the other one I'm still waiting on. Oh, so wow. it still hasn't been a couple, but a couple of weeks yet. I mean, I, I got a piece of mail that said the payment had been uh, transacted. So I'm just waiting for it to show up in my bank account. Okay. So that's at least you're close to finishing. But as that. far as, as far as the process of getting the production proof to the county, that was easy and yeah. easy to work with and go through. Yeah. And I know a lot of folks that I've talked to have said that they're counting on the MFP payments to really help equal out their balance sheets for this year and or last year. A lot of the bankers I've talked to said it made a world of mm -hmm. difference on the soybean side of a lot of a lot of operations. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely did. Well, Caleb, the last piece of news I have for today before we hop over and take a look at the markets was an interesting piece here out of South Dakota. I know you're not a cattle producer, but there's kind of this scandal going on right now in South Dakota, and the title of the article I'm reading today is South Dakota, South Dakota Foreclosure Case Could Involve More Than 31,000 Head of Cattle. So this story kind of came out yesterday. I started hearing uh, trickles and rumors about it, but I didn't want to announce it on the podcast till we had some more hard facts. It sounds like essentially there was a case brought forth by the First Dakota National Bank against Robert and Becky Blome of Corsica, South Dakota on February 8th. Essentially, it sounds like these two folks were taking out loans, overdrawing their loans, buying cattle, uh, swapping cattle, selling cattle before they had uh, them in the feed yard, doing some really shady stuff. So as of February 7th, the complaint stated that the Blooms owed a principal amount of almost $7 million in notes with an additional $792 per day in accrued interest on those notes. That's uh, it's a larger sum of money than I want hanging <laughs> over my head. I don't, uh, yeah. I don't know about you. But. I don't think, from what it sounds like, I don't think these two folks were super worried about uh, their notes that they were, that they had accrued. So, um, so are they running a feedlot or what kind of yes. operation are we talking about? So they've, they've got, they've got about three different feedlots. Um, totaling 31,450 head of cattle. And that's just the folks that have come forth so far. People that have come forward so far saying, I've had cattle with these people. Um, it sounds like they're like a custom cattle feedlot. Custom so, feeder. Yeah, huh? yeah. Yep. So that's really the only numbers we know yet. Um, those... <laughs> But this is kind of sketchy, too. It said those numbers are moving daily Friday afternoon. Since Friday afternoon of last week, it went from 10,000 to 31,000 head as of this Wednesday night. So they're doing some shady stuff, it sounds like, up there in South Dakota. Uh, I would agree. And by the time they get done compiling the interest, it's going to be a really big number. Oh, my gosh. I cannot even imagine. $792 of interest a day. Racks up in a hurry. Oh, $4, yeah. $4,900, $5,000 oh. a week. No, thank you. Nope, that gives me, like, the goosebumps <laughs> just thinking about it. 
Oh, shoot. Well, hopefully nobody gets stuck in situations like that. I hope that folks listening to the podcast have some sort of marketing plan in place or some sort of strategy that they're using to market and sell their crops and livestock. But if you don't, go ahead and give our sponsors at the Zayner Group a call today at 312-277-0050. Caleb, looking across the grains today, they're looking a lot prettier than yesterday's closes. What do you think? Well, they may be prettier, but they're still not very active. No, that they aren't. But we've got... (laughs) Especially the corn. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. We've got potentially some volatility happening next week as the USDA is going to dump basically reports from January 3rd until next week onto the markets. So we may see some volatility then. But looking at today's closes, not a lot of excitement with the March corn contract unchanged on the day at 374 and three quarters, while the May down two cents at 382 and three quarters. In the soybean pits, a little bit of green on the screen today with the March contract up four cents to close at 907 and a half, while the May up three quarter, three and three quarters to close at 921 and a half. The wheat pits closed down again on the day today with the March contract down two and three quarters cents at 504 and a quarter, while the May down three and a half cents to end at 507 even. Hopping over to look at the livestock pits, mixed trade here with the live cattle February contract up 50 cents on the day to close at 126.62 and a half, while the April down 20 cents to close at 127.17 and a half. In the feeder cattle pits, the March contract down $1.47 and a half on the day to close at 142.60. The April not spared, closing down $1.27 and a half to end at 145, 145.22 and a half. In the lean hog markets, green on the screen today with the April contract up 82 and a half cents to close at 59.52 and a half. And the May up 75 cents on the day to close at 68.45. Rounding out our markets with April, with uh, the Class 3 milk futures, February down a penny to close at 13.97, while the March down 5 cents to close at 14.51. Now, Caleb, for today's interview, you'll have to go and listen to it here after we're done cutting the podcast. Going to be chatting with Reed Burris, who is a farmer in central Iowa, but also a grad student at Oklahoma State University and just got done doing a stint in Peru studying risk assessment between United States producers and producers in Peru. Well, I am chatting with Reed Burris, who is a grad student, distance grad student at Oklahoma State University and also works with AgriPeril insurance and other things. Reed, tell me a little bit more about your business. Yeah, so really we got started here just recently. AgriPeril Risk Management was a branch of my father's original business, AgriPeril Insurance, here just around a year ago now. And uh, really what I've been doing lately with farmers here in the States, I've been working to provide them with personalized crop management plans, as well as marketing strategies in conjunction with crop and livestock insurance policies. So, Reed, if you had all that going on for you, why did you decide to uh, to do a grad school degree through Oklahoma State? You know, that's, that's a great question. I had a lot of our clients ask me, you know, why, what's, uh, what are you hoping to get out of that? And, you know, initially, when I was looking at different opportunities, different programs, um, I was considering Kansas State or maybe somewhere out east. And uh, then 
with the help of an uh, old Ac- Iowa State academic advisor, I came across the International Agriculture Masters Program through Oklahoma State. And I saw a really strong opportunity to not only expand my knowledge on international markets, but perhaps pick up an international perspective and background that I currently didn't have at the time. And um, enrolled in courses and um, through working with the faculty, I was ended up being selected as a, um, as a, well, I received a very nice travel grant that helped me go internationally and work to expand my international focus and agricultural endeavors. Right. Because you just got back from Peru. You mentioned you went from a hundred degree heat to the polar vortex back here in Iowa, negative 45 degrees. Um, tell me a little bit more about what you were doing in Peru. Yeah, so while I was in Peru, um, initially I was focused on gathering information for my thesis, which just recently hammered out a title, and it'll be focusing specifically on the comparative analysis of risk propensity, perceptions, and production methods in South America. Okay, wait, States. can we can we take a step back? What does that mean? Risk propensity? Yeah. Yep. So risk propensity is basically people's um, inaptability to make decisions in the presence of risk. So given this certain amount of risk, am I going to stray away from it? Am I risk averse? Am I going to embrace it? Am I risk tolerant or perhaps perhaps even in some say risk loving? So basically risk propensity looks at people's ability to handle that risk when presented with it. So, Reed, why pick Peru to study risk? I mean, what benefits or what, I guess, outliers led you to picking Peru? That's a great question. So, initially, um, through a few different connections that I've had abroad, my initial plan was to be going down to Australia to work develop a multi-parallel crop insurance product similar to what we have in the States down there. And then I was almost had tickets booked, ready to go. And then the whole plan kind of fell through when the chief economist let me know they didn't have the funding that they were hoping they'd be receiving to allocate towards me. So when I got that news, I was stopped in my tracks and thought, well, we, uh, I'm planning to go somewhere abroad for a lengthy period of time. Where's the next best spot? I reached out to Dr. Sheeta Henneberry. She's the program, the MEAP. Master International Agriculture Program chair down at Oklahoma State and said, Dr. Hanneberry, where is a good good place for me to, to go be? And she knew I had a very strong um, desire to learn more about South America. And she actually leveraged some of her contacts in Peru, which Peru for many folks um, isn't what we recognize to be an agricultural powerhouse. We certainly think of much more of Brazil and Argentina, perhaps even Uruguay as well. And uh, Peru wasn't exactly my first option. However, when I started to do more research, learn about how Peruvian agriculture um, is really conducted and how far, um, how, how less of a presence technology has within their agricultural communities, I saw a strong opportunity to not only study something I'm very passionate about, risk management mitigation, but as well as learn further about 
what helps these farmers who have very little make management-based decisions, similar to decisions we make here in the States and similar to decisions farmers make all across the world. Well, I think for me, one of the biggest things is that I've been able to kind of take away from my time while in Peru was while looking at, at the different factors that farmers analyze and very much similar to factors that farmers here in the States evaluate, such as expected precipitation, market price, profitability, um, cost of production, a whole slew of other factors. In different areas, different geographic regions, farmers actually have different factors that not only influence those decisions, but well, ultimately dictate what they end up doing. And it's interesting, we do have overlapping factors as farmers. However, factors that take priority in the decision-making process vary significantly. That is pretty fascinating. So is that kind of, I know for those folks that don't know, you basically, you pick your thesis, you pick your topic, you go do your research or collect your research, and then you have to analyze it. And I'm guessing that's the stage you're at now. Just preliminary analysis, what have you gathered? Is is that kind of your synopsis? Is that we see a lot of um, similar, I guess, thought processes between even the United States, it's a very developed country, and countries like Peru, where maybe we don't think about them having such a developed ag system? Absolutely. And with that, I think it's very interesting. Adaptability is one thing we look at, you know, recently here in the States, Dicamba, now we're having a lot more options, at least it seems like for our seed variety selection. Um, while I was working with farmers down there, one of the problems was that the local, um, local markets in Lima, the capital of Peru, had domestically imported too much rice and caused a excessive price fall. Because of that, Peruvian farmers in the area I was working out of, northwestern Peru, Pura, the city, um, they were forced to sell much of their crop for a loss. So then began the process for looking to find an alternative crop. Some farmers had settled on growing freehold, better known as cowpeas or what Western world folks recognize as black-eyed peas, very profitable and a very productive crop for many farmers who would otherwise usually have to rely on a small microloan administered through a bank, which annual interest isn't a term, it's actually monthly interest, which Peruvian monthly interest is around 10%, whereas, you know, maybe 6 or 7% annual here in the States for operating loans. So that was a very, very good learning curve. But ultimately, uh, from an agronomic sense, we ended up going back to what I recognized to be my bread and butter as a good North Central Iowan planting corn. And it's interesting because in Peru, there's, there's many different varieties of corn and more so potatoes than anything. However, the varieties of corn, they only allow for a certain yield. And one thing that I thought was very interesting while going down and looking for different varieties to plant and encourage farmers to plant, there's a variety that its name was marginal. <laughs> huh. So that, that certainly told me a lot out of the gate what I was <laughs> going to be working with. And um, sure enough, we ended up actually finding two very um, high yielding, high, two varieties that had a high yielding potential. And those happened to be a Dow variety and a DeKalb variety, which I got a good kick out of. 
being able to see similar seed corn products as to what we might put in the ground in the Midwest down in north northwestern Peru. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. So besides that, did you see those Peruvian farmers using similar equipment or fertilizer or other inputs? So because many farmers um, have so, so very little, um, what they've done in recent years is they've come together and formed either farmer associations or farmer cooperatives, similar to what we have here in the States in many cases. And oftentimes these cooperatives will come together, the, the farmers will put their money together and they'll purchase farm equipment. Um, they work to purchase chemicals uh, and seed and other inputs together and trying to receive that price discount in bulk. So far from what I've learned, very few folks have ever gotten to see a lot of that um, financial benefit. Equipment wise, very, very small scale, 60 to 70 horse tractors, um, a few different John Deere makes that I'd never heard of, all open station cabs, 15 to 20 foot discs were their preferred tillage equipment, harvesting for different varieties of crops, such for example, um, beans is all done by hand, corn is also done by hand, just like it was in the good old days, taken off the shank by hand and carried back to their oftentimes a flatbed truck and loaded up until it would be taken to another location to be shelled out. So that was very interesting to see. Um, they do a lot of flood irrigation, which I wasn't familiar with until I made my way down there. And I was a bit perplexed to see all the different canals, which had been many were cement. However, as I got further into the country, I found that many were actually just backhoed out and uh, just dried dirt in the water flowed freely down the canal and um, would make its way to the fields when the, so to say, floodgates were opened up for the respected fields. Interestingly enough, I was actually able to hand apply a potassium nitrate product and a, uh, <clears throat> and a phosphorus granular all by hand side by side with a few Peruvian farmers and all we applied about five acres, which wow. <laughs> it gave me a new appreciation for the technology <laughs> we have here in the States. That, oh my was, gosh. that was very humbling and a, a very, very eye-opening experience. And we did that on multiple days. We'd arrive at the fields at six o'clock in the morning and um, go to work. All by hand. All by hand. Wow. So, Reed, with this experience now in Peru, your research, your your master's and your thesis, how is that information, I guess, kind of to wrap up here, how is that information helping you when you're working with producers in Iowa and the Midwest? You know, that's, that, that's the biggest thing. Takeaways that we have um, really are the cherry on top of everything. And I'd say my cherry on top of everything for my South American experience was that being able to work through adversity, no matter how simple the issue may be, the ingenuity that the farmers down south bring to the table and put to work on a daily basis has been something that I've really encouraged not only our family farm and our local growers to maybe think more outside the box and get a bit more creative when being faced with the current low prices that we have. 
in the corn market and especially in the soybean market, but really not be afraid to say, hey, we recognize things aren't what they should be right now, but let's let's try and think outside the box. How can we work to either increase our yield potential without bumping up our bottom line too much, or perhaps how can we protect a bit more of what's out in the field to make sure that we will be around another year and not have to worry about it as much as the neighbor with the field right across from us. That's awesome. Reed, thank you so much for sharing a little bit about your experience in Peru with us. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Delaney. How, how does an Iowa kid end up at Okie State? <laughs> um, I don't know, honestly. <laughs> Not a clue. But again, that was Reed Burris for folks tuning in now. And I, Caleb, I think you did a great job today. I'm going to have to have you on the podcast more often. Well, hey, thanks. And it sounds like you'll have some other folks from our operation on the podcast coming up in future weeks. Yes, I think we've got your business partner coming on as well as your dad. So we'll see who does the best. Well, you'll have to be nice to Scott. He's just <laughs> an, he's a new dad again this week for the third time. Oh, so. that's very exciting. Congrats to him. Caleb, if folks want to interact with you on Twitter because they've just loved hearing you on the Ag News Daily Podcast, how can they do that? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Hawkeye Hamer is my handle. Hawkeye is in the state bird of Iowa and that good team that plays in the <laughs> eastern half of the state. And Hamer is my last name, H-A-M-E-R. Awesome. Go Hawkeyes. Caleb, thanks so much. And folks, if you want to interact with Ag News Daily on Facebook or on Twitter, just search for at Ag News Daily. Caleb, with that, should we let the folks go? I think we should let them go, Delaney. Delaney.